0: The final message of Paul's letter to the Galatians, I'm going to read verses 14, excuse me, verse 11 to the end of the chapter. Galatians 6, beginning verse 11. Again, the Word of God reads, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to to have you circumcised so so that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ ...through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything, nor circumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me. For I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. So as I've alluded to, we come to the final five verses today in Paul's letter to Galatians. At the end of this epistle, Paul closes with an argument, excuse me, an urgent and rather passionate message. A message that's just as urgent for us as it was for them 2,000 years ago. And briefly, let me under, let me explain that this closing section is really a summary of everything he has revealed in the whole letter from chapter 1 verse 1 to chapter 6 verse 10. After having condemned the false brethren, the Judaizers in chapter 1, which again is the purpose for Paul's writing. Our brother explained to you during Equip that a lot of the Bible, it is written to rebuke Christians. It's written to correct their thinking. It's written to put them back on the right path. And this letter is the same. Paul heard that his spiritual children were being led astray by by a group of legalistic Jews, who we know as the Judaizers. So in chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, he writes... In his letter to them, the purpose for which he writes it's c- c- to condemn the false brethren. It gets their attention right off the bat. So he sternly rebukes them in, uh, for their foolish gullibility and corrects their theology in chapters 2 to 4. And then in chapters 5 and 6, he instructs them on how to live a spirit-filled life. But notice that the rebuke and the theology came first. I explained that last time. Uh, with the whole theological pyramid. So now in this section, Paul turns a corner and begins the end of this inspired letter in verse 11, which can be taken as five lifelong lessons about the Christian life. Five lifelong lessons about the Christian life. Like the Galatians, we have some key life lessons to learn from this book. And these five lessons, I want you to take home, and I want you to think deeply about them and apply them to your lives. By way of review, we learned from last week in verses 11 to 13 that the Christian life should involve being passionate for Jesus. As, as is evident in verse 11, Paul says that, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. And again, the historical background is necessary there. Paul normally employed the service of a a secretary to write down what he said. But at the end of the letter, he takes the writing utensil and he finishes, finishes himself. And he writes it in large letters. It's just a way of saying that Paul was very passionate to put his stamp of approval or his signature at the end of the letter and say, I'm writing with large letters to drive him a point that everything I just said is really important. And to summarize everything he just said, it's all about the gospel of grace. So we should be passionate for Jesus. And then the second lifelong lesson to learn from this passage is that the Christian life could involve being inflicted, afflicted for Jesus. Because we read in verses 12 to 13 that the Judaizers compelled them to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So the cross of Christ could involve affliction. It always has, and we'll get into that, a little deeper into that later in, in, in the message today. Now the third lifelong lesson to learn from this closing section of Galatians is in verses 14 to 16. The Christian life should involve being proud of Jesus. You should be proud of Jesus which implies that we shouldn't be proud of ourselves, right? Let's read verses 14 to 16. Paul says, But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. For those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, And upon the Israel of God. Paul starts out this section by saying, but may it never be. That is the strongest way in the Greek language to connote the idea of absolute impossibility. In fact, the King James Version translates this as, God forbid. God forbid that I would ever boast in anything except for Christ. He uses this term to tell the Galatians that it's inconceivable for him to even think about boasting in anyone or anything other than Christ. The term boast, it means to exult in. And it carries the idea of glorifying in something or rejoicing in something. And that's exactly what the Judaizers were doing. They were rejoicing in themselves for the work of bewitching the Galatians into Jewish legalism. But on the other hand, what does Paul glory in? Paul gloried in the cross. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, by way of review, when you read the word cross in this letter, in this context, don't think of a pretty handcrafted polished piece of wood or a majestic painting or a shiny piece of jewelry. You know, it's it's common for People to wear like a necklace with a little cross on it. And it's supposed to say something about you, right? Usually when people wear a cross, either with with a necklace or on a t-shirt, or they have a poster or a painting, it, it, it means to convey something to somebody, right? That you're a Christian. And it's usually portrayed as something really nice and shiny. It's usually portrayed as something that's clean. But that's misleading. The cross of Jesus Christ is nothing pretty or polished or hand cut. I explained what it means last time, but let me just review. The cross in this context, it refers to the message of the cross. It means the full story. It means the entire work of divine redemption that his death on the cross accomplished. So the cross symbolizes death. The gruesome, horrific, violent, excruciating instrument of torture and execution where the God-man offered himself willingly as a blood atonement for your sin. And in doing so, he bore the awesome weight of sin, fully absorbing the wrath of God so that you could escape it by faith alone. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is in no way refer to the physical, material, tangible piece of wood. He wants us, Paul wants us to recall the substitutionary death of our great God and Savior. We glory in that cross. We glory in the cross of Christ and not in ourselves because it was his sacrifice on the cross that provided a redemption and eternal life. And we understand that no matter how hard a man may try, he cannot redeem himself. So, if you are a person that likes to have a necklace cross, or have some kind of cross in your home or on your shirt, use that as an opportunity to explain the death of Jesus Christ. Because without that horrific, violent, gory death, there's no cross. It's It's meaningless. We glory in that because that's how we were redeemed. And not only is that not a pretty message, but we don't review redemption in that way, do we? I mean, haven't you ever here, maybe you've even said yourself, boy, I really messed up, and now I have to redeem myself. Or so and so, he really messed up, but he redeemed himself by doing this thing. We naturally think that we can erase our wrongdoing by doing good. But in God's sight, that's impossible. And the truth of the matter is that only a true Christian can admit that. All of the religions that man has made up are all founded on what man can achieve. And Christianity is all founded on what Christ did on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21, key verse. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ, in him. So the cross, it refers to the substitutionary death of Christ, who was our substitute. He was made to be sin so that we could become the righteousness of Christ. That's double imputation. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. And what do we do to obtain that righteousness? We did nothing, right? We did nothing to redeem ourselves. We can't redeem ourselves. And if we really believe that, that should have a humbling effect on us, shouldn't it? If we really believe in the gospel if we really believe that we're redeemed by Christ, that His death on the cross did something, it didn't just halfway do something. It didn't just potentially do something. It didn't just make it possible for men to be saved. It provided the blood atonement for God's elect. So this doctrine of a substitutionary atonement should humble us. We did nothing to redeem ourselves. Paul elaborates. He goes on to say, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, Paul's saying that the allurement of the world system no longer has any appeal to him. It was as if the world was on the cross and there is now no vitality in the world because the world is no more to him. But it wasn't always like that for Paul. Paul was living for himself. He was living for his own prestige. Have you ever read Philippians 3? Verses 4 to 6 in particular? Paul wrote, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, in other words, to boast. If anybody has anything to boast about, it's me. I far more, he says. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel. In other words, he was direct descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was a true Jew. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He came from a pious family. And then he goes on to say, as to the law, a Pharisee. Which means he knew the law better than anyone. He was an expert. And as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Wow, Nobody was more loyal and passionate to Judaism than Paul or Saul at the time. And then he says, As to the righteousness that is found in the law, found blameless. In other words, no one could accuse him of even one violation. To sum up that passage, Paul was the poster child of Judaism. But now... It's all dead to him. Now his purpose, his goal, his reason for living is the cross. The cross changed everything. Pick it up in verse seven of Philippians three, he says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things. What are all things? His religiosity, his position, his education, his ancestry, and his morality. to be in loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish. You know, the the word, the Greek word for rubbish, it literally means that which is thrown to dogs. That which is thrown to dogs. Now remember, back in Paul's time, dogs were not house animals. Dogs were not cute, well-brushed, well-groomed, Animals that sleep on a bed with us. They were filthy, stinky, wild animals. So to say, throw it to the dogs. It can't get any lower than that. Remember in the uh, uh, parable of Lazarus and the rich man? Jesus said that the dogs came to lick the poor man's sores. So everything that Paul used to be is couldn't, couldn't be any more worthless in his, in his mind. And guess what? We should have the same idea about all of our accomplishments. All of our good works, all of our education, all of our credentials. Compared to being a Christian, compared to knowing Jesus and suffering with him and serving him. It's 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 throw it to the dump. Now you say dogs, and people think, oh, that's not that bad. I, I, I go buy premium dog food for my dog, right? Today, if Paul was alive, he would say, go throw it to the dump. It's the same thing. So that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own right from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Now, can you say that about yourself? Has the world been crucified to you? Or does the pride and comforts of this decaying world entice you? Do you daydream? Listen to me, young people. Do you daydream and fantasize about becoming rich and famous? Do you think more about your friends and fitting in than about holiness? Do you find yourself just going through the religious motions and using religious speech around other Christians, but prefer the company of the world. Forgetting that whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. You know what? If your best friends are unbelievers, you're a friend of the world. James 4. We'll get to that in a few months. But, you know, we all struggle with worldliness to a degree... At least in our thinking. It's our nature to want to find something to boast about, isn't it? But the problem is, some of us don't know how worldly we are. And it's likely that some don't know how worldly they are because of immaturity. Spiritually immature people are always more concerned with fitting in instead of being perceived as being too weird. Because worldly people think that holy people are weird and legalistic people. But as we see here at this closing section that this is where there's a biblical balance, right? We need to hate self-centered, pride-inducing, works-righteousness. At the same time, we need to be just as concerned with personal holiness and obedience to God as we are about exposing false gospels. We should hate self-centered, pride-inducing religion. Why? Because Paul answers that in verse 15. It's really nothing to boast about. Verse 15, For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, In other words, Paul is saying all external religion means nothing. Circumcision refers to legalistic Judaism. And uncircumcision, perhaps this is what we need to be more concerned about in our culture. We we, we, we get legalism by now. In fact, evangelicals are probably too concerned about becoming legalists. I met this one lady at a Christian institution who, because I guess she thought it was a Christian institution, she could show up late for work. And her boss went to her and told she needed to be on time for work. She had the audacity to tell her boss, oh, that's, that's a legalistic standard there, boss. What does the Bible say you need to be on time? Asinine, isn't it? Just crazy. That, 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 that's off-balance No, in our age, we need to be more concerned about uncircumcision. Uncircumcision refers to this one, refers refers to countless forms of cults and paganism. Here in Washington, we live in a pagan society, don't we? It's so pagan, it's unbelievable. Atheism, agnosticism, They're pagan religions. And they're meaningless. They're invaluable. They're insignificant. They rely on the flesh, what men can do, and therefore gives men reason to be proud of themselves. But what matters is to be a new creation. What matters is to be a new creation. The power of the cross makes a sinner into a new man. There needs to be new life as a result of a new birth. And this is a clear reference to the doctrine of regeneration, which can be defined as a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. It's also referred to as, quote unquote, being born again in John 3 common verse you've probably heard of is 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Legalism, paganism means nothing. Being a new creature in Christ means everything. Verse 16. And those who walk, which is to live day by day, by this rule, what rule? The rule of the gospel, the rule of the cross, the standard of the cross. He says, peace and mercy be upon them. What's that? That's the blessing of God. The blessing of God. Look, look what it is. It's peace and mercy. It's nothing physical. By bowing the knee to Jesus Christ, becoming a new creation you are promised peace and mercy. That's it. That's enough. To have peace in your soul, knowing that you have been reconciled to the God of the universe. Knowing that you've been granted mercy. That he has withheld the right judgment upon you. That's, that's, that's what you get out of the cross. And it's all for his Glory. And Paul adds on to the end of the sentence, and, and upon the Israel of God, which simply means Jewish believers, the Christian life should involve being proud of Jesus, because he's the one that has done everything. He did the work. He did what we could never do, which is provide redemption. Therefore, we have absolutely nothing to boast about, nothing at all. There should be no bragging amongst Christians. No boasting about anything. Because every good thing comes from him, the chief thing of redemption. That's the third lifelong lesson of this passage. Fourthly, the Christian life should involve being wound, could involve, excuse me, The Christian life could involve being wounded for Jesus. Verse 17. Now, let no one cause trouble for me, Paul says, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Now, isn't that interesting what he says here? He tells his congregation, he tells his sheep, listen, let nobody cause trouble for me. I mean, isn't that an odd thing? For a spiritual leader to say to his sheep, don't give me any trouble. Isn't that interesting? I don't want any trouble from you. Why would he say this? Who is causing trouble for Paul? Well, the Judaizers, right? The Judaizers are are causing trouble for him by interfering with his gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. That's trouble. Someone started teaching some false doctrine among us, or advocating doctrine that the leaders of this church don't teach. That's very troubling to me. I promise you, I would get up and say, don't cause that kind of trouble among us. But Paul says this because he's had enough to deal with in other areas. He's had so much trouble. He's paid such a high price just for being a minister of the gospel. And I understand that. Only after being a minister for 18 months, I know exactly what he's talking about. There is such a high price to preach the gospel. There's such a high price to stay in the ground and preach the word of God. What's this high price? I haven't had to pay this price yet, but I might, especially here. I want you to look at this. This is so serious. It's so sober. I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. How many people have that hanging up in their in their house? How many t shirts you see that verse on it? How many bumper stickers? How many tweets? How many people going around saying that? Brand marks, it translates the Greek word stigmatos, which we get the word stigma from. It refers to the branding of a slave. And here it refers to the scars on his body. Listen, from the wounds that were inflicted upon him because he was a jerk, because he wasn't loving enough, because he preached the gospel. He was branded because he preached the gospel. At Lystra, he was stoned, dragged out of the city, and left for dead. In 2 Corinthians 11, he gives details about the trouble he's experienced. Listen to this. I more so, and far more labors, and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number. Did you know that Paul was beaten so much he lost count? Often in danger of death, five times. I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a, a night and a day I, I spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys. And dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. Wow, who do you leave out? I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst and without food and cold in cold and exposure. How many of you can say this about yourself? Nobody? When was the last time you went without food and drink? When was the last time you received 39 lashes just for being a Christian? Pretty convicting, isn't it? And you want to know what's most shocking about Paul's branding? Get this. They were precious to him. Philippians 3. He referenced these brandings as the fellowship of his sufferings. In other words, Paul wore his branding of Jesus like a highly decorated decorated soldier wore his medals that he earned from combat. Amazing, isn't it? How many people would look at a wound that they got from being a Christian and either it would shake their faith or they would just still feel so sorry for themselves that they got beat up for Jesus? Let alone having the audacity to say something about Jesus. Paul wore these as decorations, as awards. It's amazing. Then there's something else that you understand about this physical mistreatment against Paul. In Acts 9, we we see that Jesus revealed to us that every time a blow was struck against Paul, it was really a blow against Jesus himself. I'm sure that helped. You're not taking it so personal, right? The wounds, the affliction, it's really against Jesus. And everyone who persecutes a true believer will be held accountable for it. So if you are passionate about Jesus, if you are willing to be persecuted, if you openly boast in the cross, the Christian life could one day involve being wounded for Jesus. It happened to Paul. And it continues to happen to faithful believers around the world. This statement that Paul brings up here about being branded for Jesus, it's a statement, it's a warning to every Christian, as it shows what kind of treatment we can expect from in the cross. Now, unless you've been totally unplugged from the media in the past month or two, you've probably heard about the Syrian refugee crisis. Does anybody not know what I'm talking about? The Syrian refugee... I mean, I don't care about the debate about... the political debate about how we should treat it as as Americans. I don't care about that right now. But literally, thousands of Syrian people are are fleeing their homeland due to increasing uh, violent war, civil war. And many of these refugees are finding safe harbor in refugee camps in European countries like Germany and Sweden. Now, other than being homeless, these refugees share something in common. This is just a fact, not a political statement here. They share their religion. So they bring their religion with them to a country that is nothing like theirs politically, socially, and culturally. And guess what? Religion affects all three of those. And there have been countless reports of these refugees committed tremendous, vile acts against Christians. Just go on the Voice of the Martyrs website if you're interested in that. Less than two months ago, a migrant who spoke openly about his conversion... In the camp, he spoke of the cross. Listen to this. He was beaten unconscious with a baton by a Muslim refugee in a German camp. The report stated that this unarmed victim was saved by, get this, a dozen onlookers who pulled the attacker off. I've never been a cop. I've never been in a fight in my, in my whole life. But it doesn't take experience to think how aggressive and hateful and, and, and pure wicked was this offender to where a dozen people had to pull the man off of the Christian. That's hate. That is hate. calling people to repent and believe the gospel that's not hate that's love that's hate i guarantee that when that brother reads this verse galatians 6:17 it will mean more to him than it will to ever you and me because now that brother bears on his body the brand marks of jesus like paul people have been beaten and wounded for jesus since jesus ascended and i'm just a messenger that will never change people will always be beaten and killed for jesus And I know that when Paul looked on his body and saw his wounds, it reminded him of his precious Savior. Calling into mind that what Jesus did for him was incomparable to what Paul was doing for Jesus. We all have the same mindset, don't we? Whatever loss, whatever affliction, whatever sickness, you you can't even begin to compare it to what Jesus did for us. Amen? That should be helpful to you, I hope. Lastly, the Christian life should involve being comforted in Jesus. You can take a deep breath. Heitman, you've talked about being wounded and persecuted. Oh, I can't take anymore. Leave me with some comfort. Okay, I will. Verse 18 The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Read that again. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ with your spirit. We, we tend to kind of gloss over those little verses, don't we? But we could spend a long time talking about the grace of Jesus. This b- very brief benediction here, Paul reminds us of his beloved, sp- reminds his beloved spiritual children of the matchless grace of Christ. Because at the end of the day, even after receiving brand marks, even after being pursued hostily. We need to be reminded that it was the grace of Christ that has set us free from slavery. The grace of Christ has set us free from fear of death. set us free from the wrath of God. R.C. Sproul says this about grace. His grace should never cease to amaze us. God has an absolute, pure, holy standard of justice. That's why we cling with all our might to the merit of Jesus Christ. He alone has the merit to satisfy the demands of God's justice. And He gives it freely to us. We haven't merited it. There's nothing in us that elicits God's favor that leads to our justification. Listen. It's pure grace. Unmerited favor. I don't know about you, but I can't think of a more comforting thought. The grace of Christ, it soothes my soul when I'm afraid. It soothes my soul when I think of death. It soothes my soul when I hear of terrorist attacks on our own soil. It soothes my soul when I just want to quit. So let the grace of Christ be something to comfort your soul. I know there's times we all need comforting. And let me admonish you not to look to someone else or something else for comfort, whether it's a person or a hobby. You need to look to Christ. And if you're a true Christian, you will find comfort in Christ. It does not comfort you. And that should tell you something about the state of your soul. So, the Christian life, it should involve being passionate for Jesus. It should involve, or could involve, being afflicted for Jesus. It should involve being proud of Jesus. It could involve being wounded for Jesus. And it should involve being comforted in Jesus. That's the book of Galatians. I pray that God has used this nearly year-long study of Galatians to sanctify you and equip you in the gospel. Here's my final, final exam. What is the theme of Galatians? Yes. Justification by faith alone. Now, again, let me reiterate why that's important. It's important to understand that so that you can be 100% certain that you have been justified in God's courtroom. And also, it's important so you can be a better evangelist and apologist for the gospel. Because you need to understand based off a biblical understanding of justification that only biblical Christianity is wholly grace-based grace-based and it's our duty to tell the world that's enslaved to countless works-based religion that there's one way to be declared righteous in God's sight amen Father, thank you so much for your word.